0: This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by Visit Florida, one of the country's great adventure destinations and also the home of conservation photographer Carlton Ward Jr.
1: My name's Carlton Ward Jr. and I'm a National Geographic photographer and explorer. Yeah, I'm eighth generation Floridian and my family goes back at least until the mid 1800s here. And that's given me a lot of connection to Florida's heartland and to Florida's heritage.
0: Carlton grew up on the Gulf Coast and after leaving to travel the world as a photographer, he realized that some of the greatest adventures he could find were in his own backyard.
1: He kind of fell in love with wild Florida and had a chance to you know, wander among the mangroves and wade among the salt marshes and look at the osprey nest and, and get a sense of the adventure that waits out there.
0: You may not know it, but public lands cover huge areas of Florida. In addition to stunning national parks, there are 175 state parks. Thousands of species live here, including endangered black bears and panthers. In an effort to help preserve this incredible wilderness, Carlton helped establish the Florida
1: Wildlife Corridor. It's the largest protected mangrove ecosystem in the Western Hemisphere. It wraps the entire southern tip of the state. It's the area where you have the Everglades Wilderness Waterway. It's a 99-mile canoe trail where you can start in Everglades City and end in Flamingo. In addition to that, once you get into North Florida and Northwest Florida, it has the highest concentration of freshwater springs in the world. Amazing places to dive and to snorkel and to get a literal lens down into the underground aquifer, which is this river system that flows beneath the feet of most Floridians.
0: Wherever your Florida journeys take you, don't forget your camera.
1: I think the light here is unrivaled anywhere in the world. And I'm a person who's been fortunate enough to see a lot of beautiful places from the Amazon to the Congo to East Africa. To me, it's one of the most beautiful places on earth.
0: Learn more about the many kinds of adventures that you can find in the Sunshine State at visitflorida.com slash outside. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the Outside Podcast. Have you ever met someone who always has great stories to tell? I have.
2: My name is David Kushner, and I am a contributing editor of Outside Magazine.
0: This is Michael Roberts, and I'm David's editor. Over the last seven years, I've had the unique pleasure of working with him on a string of features that stand out for being, well, let me just describe a few. In 2013, he did a story about a blind man who hunted down icebergs in Alaska to make vodka really then he did a piece about a tourist who became a kind of folk hero in iceland after his gps sent him hundreds of miles in the wrong direction last fall he wrote about the first ever treatment center for video game addicts and now comes today's story adapted from david's most recent outside feature which had him investigating a bizarre crime in one of the most out-of-the-way places on the planet it's an unpredictable tale to say the least and it's ultimately about the ways humans try to escape problems, and how that's become impossible in the modern world, where, as we've learned in a really scary way over the last several weeks, we are all very closely connected. Producer Alex Ward crafted this episode, which begins with a fairy tale.
3: Kardemommeby er en ganske liten by, den ligger så langt borte. Kardemomme is only a little town. And it lies so far away that almost nobody knows about it. Just you and me and a very few others.
4: This is the beginning of a well-known children's book from Norway called When the Robbers Came to Cardamom Town. If you grew up in Norway, there's a good chance you've heard this story. It was first published in 1955, and it's been passed down through generations ever since.
3: Oh yeah, yeah. This is, uh, I would say, top five books of passing down in Norway. You know, you guys have your Disney and stuff, but we got Cardamomubi.
4: (laughs) That's Ingvild Kosen-Montgomery. She grew up in Norway, but now lives in Portland, Oregon, where she volunteers at a local Norwegian cultural center. As a mother of two young children, she introduced them to the book as soon as they were old enough.
3: So you read it many times when you're, you know, six, seven, eight, and then you become a parent and you read it again, and it, it means different things. Um, So it's been a fun journey to read it again.
4: The book is set in the fictional town of Cardamumabi, located in a fantastical faraway land suited for a children's story.
3: Cardamum is a rather remarkable town, and a lot happens there that doesn't happen anywhere else. For example, Donkeys and camels walk about in the streets, and even an elephant or two comes ambling along now and then. It's
4: an idyllic place where everyone gets along and has their role in the community. There's a butcher, a baker, police inspector. There's even an old bearded man named Tobias. And he lives in a big tower, watching the skies to give weather forecasts. All are going about their merry business as they have for years. Until one night, when three robbers show up, singing their song about
3: stealing.
4: Badly in need of food, the robbers descend into Cardamomabi in the middle of the night. They break into the butcher shop and steal the finest cuts of meat. When the town wakes up the next morning, and discovers the crime, the ever-peaceful community is thrown into turmoil over what to do. They're not prepared for dealing with this kind of stuff, and who can blame them? Nobody thought the perils of the dangerous world would ever reach Kartamumabi, a little town that lies so far away that almost nobody knows about it. In real-life Norway, Almost 500 miles north of the northern tip of the mainland, there's also a place that lies so far away that almost nobody knows about it. It's a group of Arctic islands called Svalbard. Not long ago, outside contributor David Kushner flew there for a story. He'll be our tour guide from here on out.
2: Just arriving there, I had never seen anything like it. It's just, first of all, it's stunningly beautiful. Um, you know, it's what they call an Arctic desert. So, you, you know, flying in, you're just seeing white mountains and snow and, and nothing. And it's, it's, it's just gorgeous. And then there's this one little town, which really does look like kind of a storybook town with the, you know, red, green, yellow, orange buildings um, nestled in, uh,
4: in this small valley. David was headed to Longyearbyen, a small town about 800 miles away from the North Pole. It's one of the northernmost permanent settlements in the whole world. And in this storybook town, instead of the camels, donkeys, and elephants that we find in Cardamomaby, there's polar bears, arctic foxes, and reindeer. Other than that, it's pretty similar. There's colorful buildings that house bakeries, pubs, shops. There's even a brewery and a sushi spot all run by members of a community living far away from the rest of the world. It's, a, it's, it's people who are really, it's a pioneering sense out there. You know, people are just doing their own thing. People like Trond Helstad, the manager of the only bank in town.
5: It's been like the city where everybody knows each other so and actually almost no crime at all.
4: Trond is one of many that fell in love with the area while vacationing there. And he and his wife soon ditched mainland life for long Longyearbyen.
5: So in in Norway we call it uh, "Kaldemommeby." It's that was a a fairy tale town. That's a a kind of saying in Norwegian. That when when uh, there's actually no criminal thefts or that. So actually, it's it's like living in. You can leave the door open, the key in uh, in the car, and and um, but it's not like that anymore we can see a change in the
4: community. In 2018, that long distance between Longyearbyen and the rest of the world shrunk. That December, just one week before Christmas, a 29-year-old Russian man named Maxim Popov arrived at Svalbard Airport and checked into a hotel. He laid low for a few days, he got his hands on a gun, and he walked into the bank to rob it. Historically, the biggest threat to folks in Longyearbyen have been the polar bears. Their population outnumbers the citizens there, roughly 3,000 bears to 2,000 people. So it's commonplace to see people walking around with rifles for protection.
2: And obviously that's strictly for Uh, last resort self-defense situation. So it's just something you need, and it's very rare that anybody is going to use one. Very, very rare that a polar bear gets shot. It happens, but not that often.
4: Because of the abundance of bears, Longyearbyen is actually one of the easiest places in the world to get a gun. You can rent a hunting rifle from the local sporting goods store. Costs about $20 per day.
2: You know, you get very used to seeing people just walking around with rifles. And like, you know, when you go to the, the grocery store, I mean, there's signs outside saying, you know, please put your rifle in a locker. So it's
4: just it's just a, becomes a part of life there. That may not match the image you have of a quaint Scandinavian town. But and again, this is far from a typical place. Take the sunlight, for example. The season swing between what locals call the polar night and the midnight sun. All dark or all light. Like, it's almost got a feeling of like being like a
2: snowy version of the TV show Lost. You feel stranded, abandoned. You know, you feel like there's this strange pre apocalyptic feeling to the place, you know, it's it's kind of like, what are you going to do uh, at the end of the world? <laughs> and wh- you know, what you're going to do is you're going to go snowmobiling and dog sledding and, you know, drink some good local kind of microbrew and, you know, um, wander around in the dark in the middle of the day.
4: Being so close to the top of the world is what makes longyearbyen feel magical and surreal, like living in a snow globe. But it's also the reason that When you shake up that globe and you look under the surface, there's a whole other side to it. For starters, there's the Svalbard Global Seed Vault, sometimes known by its more dramatic moniker, the Doomsday Vault. It opened just outside of Longyearbyen in 2008 as a worldwide seed storage bank to secure humanity's food supply in the wake of a catastrophic event. And Svalbard's geography is the reason it's here. The vault is surrounded by permafrost that provides an icy protective barrier around the seeds. You know, it sort of looks like the monolith from 2001 has just been thrown into the side of a, of a mountain. Yeah, it's totally weird. A giant stone monolith meant to save mankind in the middle of nowhere. It's a fitting exclamation point to the strangeness of Svalbard. The last time Longyearbyen was in headlines around the world, before the robbery, it was because the seed vault was threatened. In early 2017, record-setting temperatures from the previous year created more melting snow than normal. This mixed with unusually heavy rains, and the entryway to the seed vault flooded, sparking an international concern. And although the seeds were never in danger, and precautions were quickly taken, the image of snowmelt seeping towards humanity's last hope was compelling.
6: The Seed Vault itself is Norway's gift to the world, so running it, uh, building it and running it is Norway's contribution.
4: Kim Holman is the international director of the Norwegian Polar Institute, an organization that oversees environmental research and management in the area. In the Kardamumabee book, Kim would definitely play the role of Tobias the weatherman, assessing the climate while stroking his long, white beard. Kim took David on snowmobile rides outside of Longyearbyen. They passed by the seed vault before heading out to see some wildlife.
6: And we're going into the Advent Valley uh, to look for some reindeer that uh, usually are walking around in here. Uh, And we'll see what we can find. The light is flat today, so it might be difficult, but I uh, I hope and believe we will find some.
4: Kim says that in Svalbard, despite the Arctic setting, there's a decent amount of greenery in the summer, which brings reindeer into the valleys. In the winter though, the greenery disappears under snow. So they come here to kick through the
6: snow to find their uh, pasture. Uh, but it's a uh, single... Uh, leaves uh, that it might find. And it's hard work, uh, actually.
4: Reindeers survive winters in Svalbard by subsiding on blubber that they built up during the summer. But then in the winter, they still need to eat something now and again to keep their intestines working. When we approached
2: these two reindeer, you could see how they were using their legs, their hooves, to hammer at the ice in the ground to try to get to the grass.
4: In recent years the rising temperatures have increased rainfall here which means the reindeer now have to penetrate through a layer of ice along with the snow.
2: So they're trying to evolve but the problem is, is they're getting
4: more rain so the reindeer are dying. The problem the reindeer are having is emblematic of life on Svalbard. Living in a beautiful strange land but forced to adapt to the changing world around it. Svalbard is among the fastest warming places on earth, with annual temperatures rising more than 7 degrees over the last 40 years.
2: You know, it's irrefutable. I mean, it's just irrefutable both the beauty of it and also the problems, you know, the the melting, the the you know, the tragedy of it in a lot of ways.
4: It's a so pristine. Near the end of their snowmobile ride, David and Kim stood overlooking a fjord, on the other side of Longyearbyen.
6: This time of the year, we would have been on a snowmobile belting across to the other side in half an hour. And now, you, uh, it is open water. So it's a profound change.
2: How does that make you feel when you stand here and look-
6: uh, it makes me feel frustrated. We knew it was coming 40 years ago. It is still coming. Um, but uh, I, I don't feel very much. I, I more see the facts as we stand right here.
4: Long ago, before Longyearbyen was dealing with rising temperatures, It was a place of utility, not much else. For over a century, it was a coal mining outpost. Before that, it was a base for whaling and hunting expeditions. Eventually, an airport was opened in 1975, and tourists began flying into the region. Nowadays, tourism accounts for the majority of Longyearbyen's economy and employment, with over 100,000 annual tourists in recent years, arriving year-round by airplane and cruise ship. As a gateway for expeditions and wildlife, the access to polar research and adventure travel attracts scientists and thrill-seekers. And then there's the kind of people who decide to make Longyearbyen their home. The 2,200 residents here come from all over the world, with more than 50 nationalities represented. English is the most commonly shared language, and the average stay is about seven years. As one of the last stops on Earth for civilization, an outpost where we protect our food supply and watch climate change. Longyearbyen draws a particular kind of person. It just it seems to attract people who are
2: either running to or away from something and can't really get any farther. It, it does have a doomsday reality that's going on there. So, you know, put whatever adjective you want to describe it, whether it's magical or bizarre, or just strange, you know. There's something about this place. And, and that was really ultimately the realization that, you know, Maxim Popov was just another person drawn to this unusual place for similar, similarly apocalyptic reasons.
4: We'll be right
0: back. Earlier, we heard from National Geographic photographer Carlton Ward Jr., who believes that Florida has some of the most amazing wild places on Earth.
1: People expect seagulls and pelicans, but they don't expect bears and panthers in these truly wild spaces that provide their homes.
0: Carlton has had some memorable encounters with Florida wildlife, but none tops the time he spotted a panther at close range inside the Audubon Corkscrew Swamp Sanctuary.
1: And it was the only time I photographed a panther with a camera in my hand, so that was Far none, the most exciting and riveting experience I had with Florida wildlife was to stare into the eyes of this female Florida panther as she stared right back at me. It was the tawny gray color of her hide that blended in almost perfectly with these cypress trunks and this piercing yellow-green color of her eyes.
0: Florida is home to the only known breeding population of panthers on the East Coast. Only around 200 of the wildcats remain and their survival is due in large part to the lands that have been protected as part of the state's conservation efforts.
1: So, you know, my hope is through telling these stories that it can inspire people to get out and make their own stories.
0: One of the best places to have your own Florida wildlife encounters is in the Everglades, where you can get close to nature through airboat rides, swamp walks, cycling on the Shark Valley Trail, and camping on a raised platform called a Chickie. Learn more about the many adventures to be had in this one-of-a-kind destination at visitflorida.com slash outside.
4: Maxim Popov, the robber that came to Longyearbyen, arrived in December of 2018. David wasn't able to talk to Maxim for this story, so we can't know what was going through his head at the time. What we do know is that he traveled here from his home in Volgograd, an industrial city in southwest Russia. He was 29 single and unemployed. For reasons that I, I I couldn't quite figure
2: out, he had become suicidal. I mean, I know that he had lost a job, and, and um, I think that that was a big problem, his unemployment. Um, and he had been gotten to the point at which he wanted to take his own life. To do
4: that, Popov wanted to get a gun. And in Russia, that's a difficult thing to do, which is presumably why he turned his sights towards Longyearbyen. It's a popular tourist destination for Russians, so it's likely he'd heard about the place before.
2: He knew that that you could get a gun, and he figured this is a good place to go in my
4: life. Um, And that's what he went off to do. After some 18 hours of travel, Popov found himself in Longyearbyen. He was there in the time of year called the Polar Night, when the sun never rises above the horizon. He checked into his hotel room and proceeded to spend a few days exploring the town. Before leaving Russia, he'd filled out an application for a gun rental. And eventually, he went to the sporting goods store to pick it up, a large rifle capable of taking down a charging polar bear. The clerk showed him how to use it, and Popov walked out with a gun slung over his shoulder, just like everybody else. Back in his hotel room, Popov mulled things over. He was far from home, in a strange place with no sunlight. He finally had his gun, but now, faced with the moment he'd been thinking about so much, he lost his nerve. We don't know what made him change his mind, but for whatever reason, he didn't want to die anymore. But he also didn't want to go back to Russia. So what's he going to do? And he decides, I need to get help. I'm, I'm depressed, I'm
2: suicidal. And again, you know, this is not this is not rational, a rational mind here. So um, rather than walking into somewhere and saying, hello, I need help, he decides he's going to
4: uh, rob a bank. Over at the bank, the manager, Trond Hellstad, who we heard from earlier, was sitting in his office with his morning cup of coffee.
2: So what happened? Like, you were sitting here and it's pitch black outside, can you...?
5: Yeah, 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 what happened, it was the 21st of December, kind of quiet time. Uh, this man come, came in, I didn't uh, notice him at all. And then he had a rifle in his hands, and the first thing I said to him, you have to leave the, the bank with the, leave the weapon outside because you do not allow to... not allow What to did help. he
2: look like, physically? Yeah,
5: uh, a big guy. Kind of nervous. You could see that it was warm. He was wearing thick clothes. and He was quite calm. He didn't do any dramatic things.
4: Tron thought Popov had simply come into the bank while absentmindedly holding his rifle. Instead, Popov spoke in English the words he'd been practicing. This is not a joke. This is a robbery. I need a hundred thousand.
2: What did you think when he said this?
5: Yeah, well, actually, it didn't... Still then, I, I didn't actually believe that it was happening. We, actually, we tried to talk him from it, but uh, we had have, we have to realise that, well, actually, he, he, he's robbing us, and, and, well, we had to give him some money and...
2: Did he aim the gun? Was he aiming the gun? Yeah,
5: he was aiming the gun, not the whole time, but if we started to argue too much, then he aimed the gun. At that must also. have been scary, though. How did you yeah, feel? Yeah, yeah. yeah but it was the, the situation was not, not so dramatic.
2: So then what happened then were he uh, he wouldn't leave? What was he saying to you when you were trying to?
5: I need money. You have to give me money. And finally, we, we did.
4: Popov left the bank with about $8,000 in cash stuffed into his pockets. One of the bank employees had already called the police by that time. But in an isolated place like this, the chance of getting away with such a crime is almost zero. One phone call shuts down the
2: one airport, which is a few miles away. There's very few roads, right? You can't really drive. So that was the mystery, is that where is this guy gonna go? And also, where's he gonna go in a town full of people with rifles?
4: In the Hollywood version of this story, This might end with a snowmobile chase across the permafrost, dodging polar bears and reindeer. Or maybe Popov would barricade himself inside the seed vault, leading to a tense shootout. But this isn't Hollywood, it's Svalbard. Popov made no attempt to get away. Instead, he walked back to the sporting goods store and returned his rifle. And then panic set in, and Popov needed to hear a familiar voice. He called his mother in Russia and told her he just committed a robbery. According to Popov, at his trial months later, she advised him to run, but he said he was on a desert island. So he walked back to the bank. He would claim in court that he intended to return the cash. Police soon showed up, and he was swiftly arrested. It was as if the robbery was some bizarre daydream that came and went. Though for Popov, it wasn't really a robbery at all it was a cry for help that was answered though not exactly as you might have hoped you know he
2: did get what he wanted uh ultimately and uh he was sentenced to a little over a year in prison in Tromso which is a town on the mainland um uh, but he's not going to get to stay so once he's out they're going to they're going to um expel him from norway and uh so i think that he as a character was not that different from a lot of other people i mean obviously he was you know struggling with perhaps um mental illness or certainly depression but you know he had his own reasons to go to this far flung place
4: as for trond hellstead and the residents of longyearbyen the incident was kind of a menacing omen for what's really happening underneath this fairy tale place what
2: people told me was how it, it did shatter the snow globe <laughs> that they lived in you know it is like the feeling was this doesn't happen here and actually just anecdotally i mean there are people who are saying that now there's been this uh there's been this kind of uptick in petty thefts and things of that nature you know i mean tron he specifically said to me it's like the big cruel world is coming to town um which you know i i think that that's true both in terms of the nature of this crime, but it's also just kind of, I think, the big cruel reality of, of climate change and how it's impacting this place.
4: It's easy to interpret Popov as a chilling, real-life manifestation of the robbers in the Cardamomabe folktale, an idyllic yet strange town suddenly upended by a crime they didn't see coming. When I talked to Ingville the woman that read us bits of the book at the beginning. She nodded politely when I explained the connection between the book and the robbery in Longyearbyen.
3: Oh, yeah. All right. Robbery, that that makes sense. How it's a slow town and everyone knows everyone. Everyone is nice and no one expects anything. Uh, and that is a good comparison, but but there might be different ways of looking yeah. at this story in connection to this book. It's an amazing book.
4: What she was trying to tell me was that if you aren't focusing on how the Cardamumabee book ends, you're missing the whole point. So let's pick up from where the three robbers are finally caught stealing meat and bread. The police inspector catches them, but doesn't want to arrest them since they were just hungry. But the town decides, no, there should be some punishment, so they go to jail. But then the community begins cooking meals for them and keeping them company in jail. And soon the robbers feel like a part of Cardamumabee.
3: So they really appreciate this. And it turns out one of the robbers can play an instrument and the community finds this instrument for him. And now he plays and he has a concert and so they're finding their self-worth again. And then there is a fire in the tower where the weatherman Tobias lives. And the three robbers get to be the hero of of the day they saved the animals in the top of the tower, and they put out the fire. And the whole town celebrates the robbers now. So they're the heroes of the story, even though they ended up or started out being the bad guys. Now they're the heroes. What I was thinking was uh, the robbers in this book, they're longing for community, and they're not really that evil. They are hungry and they don't have clothes. And sure, maybe there's a reason why they don't have a job and maybe they're lazy and stuff, but at the end of the day, they're not really that bad. And as soon as they get in jail and they create some friendships in jail and they have some kind of purpose and they clean up and they turn into be these three great guys. And that's kind of all they all they needed was a little bit of... Uh, help to get back on track. But all they knew was how to go to town and steal a sausage because they were hungry. (laughs) And then maybe they took some candy because who doesn't like candy, right?
4: (laughs) Today, Maxim Popov sits in prison on mainland Norway. He'll likely be released sometime this spring or summer and sent back to Russia. Will he emerge from prison feeling healed like the robbers in the book? Only time will tell but one would hope that he does. As for Longyearbyen and what the future will bring for the people there? That's a more difficult question. Sure, they'll recover from the robbery and move on, but the town is changing no matter what. Popov's crime was a sobering reminder of the real threats encroaching on this fairytale town, the kind of magical place that might turn robbers into heroes.
3: Och vi har trommer och trompeter. vis du tränger till en dansare. Kardemomme byorkester spelar nästan utan stans. Hurrah, hurrah för byen vår. Här vill vi bo i hundred år. <laughs> You're welcome.
0: <laughs> That's Alex Ward. He produced this episode, which was edited by me, Michael Roberts with music by Robbie Carver. David Kushner's feature story about the robbery in Longyearbyen first ran in Outside Magazine's January-February 2020 print issue. You can find it at outsideonline.com with the title, The Bizarre Robbery That Shook an Arctic Town. This episode was brought to you by Visit Florida, one of the country's great adventure destinations. Learn more about the many adventures that you can find in the Sunshine State at visitflorida.com outside. We'll be back next week.